ask you to turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. That is found on page 993 in the Pew Bibles. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, should we believe anyone who disagrees with Jesus? Two, whose job is it to make sure only the truth is taught in church? Three, what is the best way to know the difference between Bible truth and false teaching? For those of you who are visiting with us today, we are working our way through Paul's letter to Timothy, and we are now in chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 3. This is the word of God. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. We'll end God's reading, the reading of God's word there. Our focus, again, is on verses 3 to 5. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your holy word. Lord, you have given us the truth. You've given us all that we need for godliness to understand the truth about ourselves, to understand the truth about you. Lord, we know that there are many warnings about those who would distort your word, who would take away from it or add to it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people of your word because you have spoken. And so help us to embrace all your truths in your word. But when we consider the weightiness of expressing the truth we pray that you would be with this preacher and anyone who would ever be in this pulpit that you would guard the gospel here pray that even through the preaching of your word that you would sanctify the words and use them for your glory penetrate our hearts that we would ultimately hear from you as you minister to us by your word and by your spirit and so also be with each one of us and prepare our hearts to receive that which we need to hear today. And we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. It may seem like churches that are solid churches spend an awful lot of time on upholding sound doctrine and in talk, talking about the importance of sound doctrine seem to be awful hung up on those issues. Uh, there are a number of matters of great importance that the church needs to deal with, many things of practical religions, things of 
faith and life, culture, issues that the church must take up. But if the church gets the fundamentals wrong, the church is in great trouble. Foundation of faith, to understand true Christian life and the work of the church. We can only find that in the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, most particularly in the gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ. Individuals and churches that step off of the authority of scripture are not only endangering themselves, but they're endangering other people by their false teaching. And so you can begin to understand why it's so important for churches to protect the gospel. Influencers, teachers, and preachers are especially in trouble if they're distorting the gospel. Now, if it weren't so important in Scripture, it shouldn't be so important for the church. But if you read through Scripture, it's an issue that arises again and again, that of false teaching from the very beginning. As the serpent said to Eve, did God really say that theme is played out throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament? Even within the covenant people of God, you had false prophets, you had false priests that were teaching things contrary to God's word. You come to the New Testament and look at the Gospels. Jesus constantly needed to correct those who were distorting the Old Testament scriptures and misunderstanding who he was. Well, then when Christ finishes his work, when he does finally go to the cross and rises up from the dead and ascends into heaven, then the doctrines of Christ need to be hammered out. The church needed to make sure that they had things right regarding the person, the work, and the words of Jesus Christ. The problem with heresy, the problem with false doctrine is nothing new, still deal with it today. With the advent of Christ, it had a particularly new flavor because it had to do with, again, the things that pertain to Christ. Misunderstandings, distortions, diminishing the person of Christ. Christian heresies started to spring up. Christian cults, you might say, began to spring up at an astounding rate so early in the church, all focused on the person of Jesus. No wonder it's so important for Paul and the other writers to stress sound doctrine based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Timothy is in the position of sustaining the church in Ephesus. Paul, I'll remind you, is writing to Timothy, a young pastor, a young leader in the church, and it's upon him to guard the gospel, to make sure that the preachers and teachers are sound. And Paul warns him that there are some in the church who aren't sound, who are troublemakers. And he reminds him that anyone who dares to teach anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, any doctrine contrary to scripture, especially regarding the word and work of Christ, needs to be dealt with. We can think of probably way too many examples of how this looks in our own day. Christian sects, so-called Christian cults, pop preachers who preach a false gospel. I was asked once, Pastor, you've got to give us names. I'll give you some names in a little while, but the list could go on and on. For here, I simply want to say, if you want to understand what's false and what's true, you've got to have your Bible. You've got to know your Bible. You've got to compare what's being taught to your Bible. 
which reminds me to say a word about catechisms. I do love our catechisms. Someone described me at my own ordination as a catechism man. But the problem with catechisms are that they're developed by men. Valuable as they are, and as much as our own catechisms strive to reflect Scripture most clearly, there is a flaw in using catechisms to determine doctrine. Here's why. Because anybody can write a catechism. Anybody can write a catechism. Questions and answers. Consider the fact that one time some Jehovah's Witnesses showed up at our door, definitely a so-called Christian cult, absolute heresy, showed it up, up at our door. And I had one of my children with me, and they, they started to ask my child questions that would trip them up because they knew that we were Christians. I had turned to the child and asked them some catechism questions, thinking that that would be a good way to respond to these Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Jehovah's Witnesses had their own set of questions that were loaded with falsehood in order to trip people up. So we have to be careful in using catechisms. I'm not likening them at all to cults, but think of our Baptist brothers and sisters. I point out specifically Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters. Doctrinally, as far as the doctrine of doctrines of grace, we're right there together. Our difference is on the covenant and on baptism in particular. Again, I refer to my own children who once went away to a Reformed Baptist retreat. And they got challenged on their belief in infant baptism. When they came back, they went to one of their Christian school teachers and asked, how do we respond to these questions about infant baptism? They should have come to their dad first, but they went to their teacher. And the teacher said, well, go to this and that question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. Well, Reformed Baptists have their own catechism. So what good is that? No, go to Scripture. Understand from Scripture why you believe what you believe. Let me clarify again. I'm not saying that Reformed Baptists are heretics. We have good fellowship with them. The point is, go back to Scripture. Well, Paul is here warning Timothy about specific false teachers of his day. The impact that they have and what must be done with them. It's amazing, again, how many angles of false doctrine about Christ started to rise up. There were Judaizers who said, yes, you can have Jesus Christ, but you still have to undergo the Old Testament rituals. There were the Gnostics who had this strange spiritual sense of things as opposed to physical senses of things. All kinds of distortions about the person of Jesus Christ. They all started to rise up. When we're talking about the things we're talking about this morning, we're not simply talking about differences in interpretations that can be understood. We're not talking about differences in traditions, in tastes, or anything like that. We're talking about things that strike to the heart of the gospel. And these are those who are teaching false doctrine. I'm going to purposely be rather simplistic today. We'll look at a number of passages but things that have to do with the basic gospel. 
The word that Paul uses for a different gospel, different doctrine, different teaching is heterodoxy. That which is heterodox. Hetero means different. We're used to thinking of heterosexuals. We are for heterosexual marriage. One gender marrying a different gender. That's good with marriage. When it comes to doctrine, we don't want a different doctrine, heterodoctrine, from the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to have heresy, in order to have other doctrines, you need to have orthodoxy, sound or straight teaching. Scripture defines orthodoxy. Some of you have been to orthodontists. You went there to have your teeth straightened. Some of you paid for orthodontists, and you know what it costs to have teeth straightened. But ortho means straight or direct. Straight doctrine according to Scripture. But those who are heterodox, those who are teaching false doctrine, need to be handled by the church. They're teaching what's contrary to the word of God, specifically here, Jesus' words. Before we even think about Jesus' words, we have to think about his person because there were all kinds of false doctrines surrounding his persons, that he was only flesh and not God, or that he was only spirit, sort of an apparition, or that he was only a prophet, or all kinds of other things were false teachings about Jesus. What I'd like to do with each of these things to do with his person, his words, and his work, is look at one brief passage and then a fuller passage. So, first of all, regarding Jesus' person, John, the apostle, writes about Jesus, the reason he wrote his gospel, that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, translate Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you would have life in his name. Then if you turn to Philippians, Philippians, and I do want you to turn to some of these if you're preaching a sermon on the authority of God's word, you better back it up with God's word. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just one of so many passages reiterating the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So his person. And then his words. So many errors regarding Jesus' words. Very popular to say that there are many ways to heaven. Even preachers, so-called Christian preachers, waffling on that issue. Is Jesus the only way? 
The words of Jesus Christ himself, very familiar. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now jump over to John chapter 3, Jesus' interchange with Nicodemus. John 3, beginning in verse 14. Jesus describing the state of man, Jesus describing the exclusivity of being born again and inheriting the kingdom of God solely through him. John 3, beginning in verse 14. I purposely start in 14 because Jesus here is clearly pointing to looking to the cross alone for salvation. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What a travesty when so-called preachers take the very clear words of Jesus Christ himself and distort them to satisfy the itching ears of hearers. And then Jesus' work. Jesus' work. We're all good people. We're all children of God. That's a lie. That's a lie. All those works-oriented religions that hold a false carrot out in front of people thinking that somehow they can be good enough to be reconciled to holy God, it's all a lie. Apostle Paul Very familiar verses, I trust again. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans chapter 3. And again, so many verses we could look at. Romans 3, beginning in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received with faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. We'll just stop right there, but very clearly, man incapable of saving himself to the extent that Jesus Christ underwent the wrath of God in order to satisfy the wrath that we deserved as sinners. The work of Christ is central to any thoughts of salvation. So the person of Christ, the words of Christ, and the work of Christ. 
These false teachers are twisting that. Paul also says that, that they're teaching what's, what's not in accord with godliness. Well, that's rampant in many pulpits throughout our own country. But that which is out of accord with godliness, and simply said here that, that the moral climate of people living under false teaching will eventually decay. It's certainly the case in our country. But false teaching notoriously leads to moral compromise. You simply need to go back to our forefathers and mothers early on in the church back in the days of Exodus when it seemed like a simple, reasonable thing to make a calf out of, out of metal and worship it. But it wasn't just a matter of having another god. It wasn't just a matter of having images of another god. They fell into dissipation and perversity. Just one example of many. Well, all false teaching is corrosive. Paul is focusing in on these people with corrupt character. Now let me make it clear, all heretics and all people who teach false doctrine are not nasty people, not mean people. Some of the nicest people I've met are heretics. Some of the nicest people I've met belong to Christian cults. But this particular group is a gnarly group. And Paul doesn't mince words when he comes after them. They're conceited and ignorant. I love the word that Paul uses here in the Greek. It's tufo. Sounds like what it is. They're puffed up. And they're puffed up like big inflated balloons with self-conceit. They're all about themselves. And they think they're smarter than everyone else. The irony is, Paul points out, they don't know nothing, to put it in our terms, which is double negative. But they know nothing. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about because they don't see the truths themselves. They're controversial and quarrelsome. Controversial figures stirring up trouble. Now, when there is false doctrine and someone's stirring up trouble because of that, because they're standing on the truth, that's, that's a good time to be controversial. But these people, they just like to be controversial. In fact, if somebody is consistently a controversial figure in the eyes of good, solid, sound Christians who hold the scripture, that should be a red, red flag about those individuals. Controversial and quarrelsome. They love to dispute and they love to argue. To put it this way, they're depraved, deprived, and they're mercenaries. They're depraved because they have sinful motives. They're deprived because they don't have the truth themselves. And they're mercenary because it's self-serving. Lord willing, we'll see the whole issue of contentment where Paul goes with Timothy next. But for today, we're dealing with these false teachers. They're mercenary. They're all about either feeding their ego or lining their pockets. And sadly, the world is rife with money-grubbing, 
so-called Christian preachers. It's bad in other countries, but it's bad enough right here in our own. So many easy targets in our own country. But, but I say easy targets, but it's amazing to me how much money is sent to charlatans and heretics in our own country. You can find lists, lists of absolutely untrustworthy ministries that you should not give money to. Here's the big ones, and they're some of the biggest money makers, and most of you will scratch your heads. But I'll say if any of you are giving one penny to any of these, you need to stop. So here, for those of you who like names named, Benny Hinn Ministries, Creflo Dollar, something in the name there, Creflo Dollar Ministries, Crenshaw Christian Center, that's Fred Christ Jr., John Hagee Ministries, Kenneth Copeland Ministries, Kenneth Hagen Ministries, notice their names are in most of them, Wisdom Center, that's Mike Murdoch, Joel Olstein, shocker. Lakewood Church. And the list goes on and on. And those are just the top ones. Money-grubbing charlatans who are lying to people, deceiving them into comfort, lining their path towards hell. Our concern that's an overwhelming worldwide national issue as well. Our concern is the local church and our denomination where things are somewhat manageable. But these individuals are pompous, ignorant, divisive troublemakers, and they're contagious and they infect, invulner they infect vulnerable people. One of our people put it this way, anyone who teaches anything other than Christ crucified is just full of himself and wants attention. They just want to cause trouble among the people. It's up to the church that that trouble is not caused among the people. It causes strife. The byproducts, can be spiritually devastating. Thankfully, God can override any false teaching and save souls, save, save souls from cults and false teaching. He does it all the time. But people are easily led astray. And the byproducts of false teaching in a church is ill will created between members. These controversial, quarrelsome people, conceited and ignorant, depraved, deprived, and perhaps mercenary, will cause ill will between the members of a church, will cause friction within the body, friction within one body. The body is many parts, remember that. We're all supposed to work together. One of my least favorite medical terms that too many of you are here is that your joints are bone against bone. Bone against bone. False teaching, division in the church, is like bone grinding against bone. That's a byproduct of false teaching and controversy within the church, and it can cause great division. 
leading people astray. Well, I was going to read for you some very pointed statements about false teachers, their damage and their end. I'll just simply point you to 2 Peter 2 and Jude. In your spare time, if you want to read them, do that. I won't take the time this morning. But the point for the church is that false teaching must be stopped, and the weight is on the elders of the church. Elders in this local church, elders in the presbytery, our body of elders in our region, elders in our denomination. It's up to them to protect the church, to guard our seminaries, to make sure that our seminary professors are not going off track, to make sure that men being ordained are sound in doctrine, right here to our local church where our elders have to supervise and oversee anything and everything that's taught in our church. From this pulpit to our adult Sunday school, down to elementary school, down to even in the nursery. You don't want people teaching wrong things, even in the nursery about Jesus. The elders have a tremendous task. It reflects the task that Timothy was given. So the word needs to be protected. Leaders need to be well-trained and committed to the authority of the word and biblical doctrine. But by the time Paul is writing to Timothy, there are already problems in the church. And so what do you do about, about preachers and teachers that worm their way in on every level? There's the protection aspect, but then there's the difficult aspect of weeding out. What do you do? I've been thinking a lot about weeds lately. Have you? Some of you are familiar with my history of farming. You know that I love to plant and I love to reap what was sown, the crops, the fruit, but that time in between with the weeds is miserable. But I've been observing weeds quite a bit, and false teachers in the church are like weeds. I'm always amazed how closely weeds can mimic the good plants. And then I'm amazed at how much life that weeds can soak out of the good plants and sometimes choke them. And then I'm amazed at how closely weeds can root themselves next to the good plants. And you go to pull out the weed, and you accidentally pull out the good plant. Now, I'm still developing my doctrine of weeds, but I think enough said for today. We see the danger of weeds, and they need to be taken out in order to protect the church. And that, again, rests on the elders, the presbytery, the session, the presbytery, the denomination. Well, there's so much, so much to learn in God's word, so much. We need to be people of God's word, regularly studying God's word. Can't emphasize that enough. Genesis to Revelation. But again, there's that heart of it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we don't get that right, there's very little hope. 
there's very little hope for life in the church. It's no wonder Paul ends, and this is a spoiler alert, we'll get here eventually, but how Paul ends, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you again so much for your word. And whenever we open your word and read it, whenever your word is read, whenever we hear your word, we are confronted with true truth, undeniable truth. And Lord, we thank you that in your wisdom you have preserved for us your scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to always tune our ears and our hearts what you say in your word. We thank you especially for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. While every part of your word is breathed out by you, we cherish the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came to save sinners like us, who is the only way, the only hope that sinners like us have to be reconciled to you, a holy God. We praise you for the gospel. We pray that we would be students of the person of Christ and of the words of Christ and of the work of Christ and that you would open our eyes more and more to the fact that everything from Genesis to Revelation speaks to us of the Christ and of your glory Help us, Lord, to protect, cherish, and guard that which you've deposited to us, to this church. Be with our elders here in our session, in our presbytery, and our denomination. Protect us from false doctrine. Preserve your gospel, we pray, and use us to do so. We come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper.